Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good evening, everyone. I'm Josie Warden, Head of Regenerative Design here at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to tonight's very special event. And we're here to celebrate the award of the 2021 Bicentenary Medal to Dr. Daniel Christian Rahl, who's a design thinker, activist, and innovator, and whose work has had a huge influence on me personally and on the programme that we've developed here at the RSA, but also I know on many, many people around the world um, working on regenerative practice, and I'm sure many of you here who are joining us this evening. Um, so this evening, Daniel will give the kind of time-honoured medal address, um, this year obviously in a virtual format, joining us from his home in Mallorca. Um, and we're really truly delighted that so many of you have also been able to join us from all over the world to celebrate this event. Um, you're also really welcome to join the conversation online, um, on Twitter, using the hashtag JoinTheRegeneration. Um, but before we hear from Daniel, it's my very great pleasure to introduce my colleague, Dr. Joanna Shuker, who is Director of Design and Innovation here at the RSA. Um, and Joe's going to tell us a little bit more about the medal, um, the history of it, and why Daniel is such a meaningful and important recipient this year. So over to you, Joe. Thank you, Josie. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here on behalf of the RSA trustees and the nominations and review panel members to formally award Dr. Daniel Christian Vall with the 2021 Bicentenary Medal. Since 1954, the medal has been awarded annually to individuals who've made outstanding contributions to the advancement of design in industry and society. For over 260 years, the RSA has been at the forefront of promoting design through its competitions, its awards, social and public improvement initiatives, capacity building, and influencing governments. We remain more than ever committed to continue to champion design as an enabler for creating a world where everyone can participate in shaping a better future. So this year, the RSA felt it was critical to review the purpose of the Bicentenary Medal to recognize an emergent yet necessary form of design, regenerative design, which could meet the urgency, complexity and scale of the challenges in our age of climate emergency. So this year, the medal is being awarded to a person who's made an outstanding and demonstrable con contribution through their design practice towards an equitable and regenerative world where people and planet flourish in the long term. In addition to refocusing the purpose of the medal this year, we have also redesigned the medal's nomination and selection process to be more inclusive, equitable, and to identify more diverse candidates. So instead of a closed nominations process, which um, has been the, the, the historical precedent, we've opened up nominations to a group of diverse nominators across our community of staff, fellows and partners, with the invitation of nominating up to three candidates each. We've also increased the clarity and transparency of the medal criteria, and we've invited a diverse review panel of staff fellows, partners, and royal designers of industry to collectively review and deliberate on who should be awarded the medal before sharing it with trustees and the governance and nominations panel for approval. The result, without a doubt, is to award Dr. Daniel Christian Vall as a catalyst to shaping and growing the field of regenerative design. Dr. Val works internationally as a consultant and educator in regenerative design, whole systems design and transformative innovation. His vast catalogue of forward thinking work, notably his book, Designing Regenerative Cultures, has inspired and enabled people from all walks of life to apply regenerative design to their own contexts. He's worked with individuals, organizations, communities globally to transform the regenerative design field from a specialist practice into a widely recognized approach to help us transform our failing systems. So through this medal, we're extremely excited for the RSA to continue to support and champion uh, Dr. Val's work and regenerative ways of designing our future systems. So without further ado, Daniel, may I congratulate you as the 2021 Bicentenary Medalist and invite you to give your medal address. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, um, good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for choosing to celebrate this award with me today. Um, I'm really deeply grateful to the RSA for creating a regenerative futures program. It is a powerful invitation to the global fellowship of cultural creators 
creatives who are united by this over 260 year old institution to take time to consider regenerative development and design and its significance to all our future. More importantly, it invites culturally creative discourse, creativity and experimentation with the implementation of pathways that might bring about such a future. Personally, I'm deeply touched and humbled by the honor and, and the recognition of being awarded this medal. Um, thank you so much to, to everybody who's been involved in, in nominating and selecting. And um, in general, acknowledgement for, from established institutions is pretty rare for many people around the world who are already finding purpose and deep meaning in reconnecting to life's regenerative impulse. So for me, this is award is for all of them. This award is for the many generations before us who knew how to walk into the future in beauty as the Navajo advised their children. Without our shared indigenous ancestors, we simply would not be here now. This award is also to all those who are out there, who are out there who have kept alive the, the, the un unique practices in place of ancient traditions of how to live in right relationship with the community of life. This award is to all the pioneers who have tried in different ways to bring the insights of science and the power of design and technology into service to life itself again. This award is to the many of you listening today who are already part of the rising regeneration. To all those who have decided to live their lives and are using their creative agency in service to regenerating the earth and her people. There will be no regenerative future for many species, our own included, if we do not take on this massive design challenge we are now faced with. Over the last 250 years, the practices of a relatively small proportion of humanity have severely damaged the planetary life support system. Collectively as a species, because of that, we are now undergoing a rite of passage, triggered by the real possibility that business as usual will lead to our premature extinction as a species. I firmly believe that humanity still has a role to play, that we are not destined to be a destructive species. I know we have the potential of healing the earth and her people by co-creating diverse regenerative cultures everywhere. The pathways into a regenerative future are as diverse as the regenerative cultures that will be the expressions of that future. Walking the path of regeneration is not about solutioneering and global problem solving. It is not about scaling up solutions in a copy and paste mindset without sensitivity to the biocultural uniqueness of place. Instead, walking the regenerative path is about reconnecting and manifesting the inherent potential of people in place to thrive individually and collectively as expressions of that place. Walking the regenerative path is about understanding that in order to fully be able to share the unique gift each and every one of us holds, we need to put it in service to the larger context we embedded in. Walking the regenerative path is about building the individual and collective capacity of people and communities to humbly face an uncertain future by aligning with life's inherent impulse to regenerate, to evolve and to transform. Individual by individual, community by community, bioregion by bioregion. We cannot heal the planet, we can only heal places. And to have global impact, we have to start in place, in our bioregion. So this massive design challenge is really nothing less that, that, than that the generations in life today are called to fundamentally redesign the human impact on Earth from being right now predominantly exploitative and degenerative to becoming healing and regenerative again. This will not come about through envisioning one ecological civilization. It will require a cosmopolitan bioregionalism of diverse 
place-sourced regenerative cultures in global collaboration and solidarity. Only this diversity and sensitivity to ecological and cultural context will contribute to our collective capacity to keep evolving, transforming, and regenerating. You might say this sounds like a daunting challenge, impossible, utopian. Well, that would certainly be true if you base your judgment on the common cultural discourse about who we are and our history. But what if we broaden and deepen our historical perspective beyond the eight to 5,000 years that we normally refer to as history? What if we pay attention to the mounting evidence that many highly productive and diverse ecosystems around the world, for example, the large parts of the Amazon rainforest, the old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest, the lost forest gardens of Europe, are in fact all results of the careful and appropriate participation of indigenous cultures in these ecosystems. To this day, 80% of the world's biodiversity hotspots are inhabited by indigenous people who have acted as custodians of that biodiversity over the millennia. The creation of a regenerative futures program is a celebration of the renaissance of this cultural regenerative impulse that, is, that's had, that has its roots in our common ancestry as a species and beyond that in our identity as temporary expressions of life's own pattern of evolution. When we look at the evolutionary journey of life as a planetary process, rather than employing the exclusively individual or species-focused lens, we begin to understand what Janine Benius meant when she so poignantly summarized the central lesson of biomimicry. Life creates conditions conducive to life, and good design creates conditions conducive to life. Over the last 3.8 billion years, life has evolved towards increasing abundance, productivity, diversity, and complexity. What's more, each major jump in the complexification and the creativity of life has been enabled by new patterns of collaboration rather than competition. That is the core pattern which made us possible and why we are here anything else defutures rather than futures. The record shows that species who do not contribute to the health of the whole, but erode it, may bring down many others with them for a while, but they do not have an evolutionary future. The nested regenerative community, which maintains planetary health, ecosystems health, population health, individual health, creates its own systemic immune response to any particular species that falls short of creating conditions conducive to life. It is time that we learn that again as a, our, as, as a human family. I'm confident that despite the converging crises of extinction emergency, climate chaos, and the obscene levels of inequality within and between countries, we are actually capable of healing our relationships with place, of healing our relationship with each other and our relationship to the community of life. This is because we have a powerful ally, life itself. Regenerative cultures are nothing new. Rather, it is high time that we learn to recognize that our species has evolved as bioregionally focused regenerative cultures everywhere. Indigenous cultures on six continents have demonstrated over many millennia how to be good custodians and to nurture the health and abundance of the ecosystems they inhabited. One thing most of these regenerative cultures had in common or have in common is that they understood themselves not as owners, but expressions of place. Rather than the land belonging to them, they belonged to the land. All decisions of importance were made with three questions in heart mind. Does this serve the individual? Does this serve the community? Does this serve life itself? These questions offer reliable, a reliable guidance system for navigating wisely into an uncertain and unpredictable future. 
how would we redesign the human impact on Earth with these questions in mind? Historically, the Bicentennial Medal has been awarded to individuals, and I quote from Wikipedia, who applied art and design in great effect as instruments for civic innovation. So allow me to make a few comments about design. Putting the word regenerative next to the word design can be somewhat misleading depending on how we think about design. Often designers think of themselves as problem solvers through the delivery of their designs, an object, a building, a neighborhood, a physical material outcome in space-time. But the notion of regeneration is all about flux, about transformation, and not about fixing things through somewhat final solutions. In this perspective, all design can ever do is to create prototypes that help us to learn on our way towards deeper understanding and insight, which will help us to discard and transform or replace prototypes in response to changing contexts. Consequently, it is worth highlighting that regenerative design invites us to pay much more attention to design as a process of engagement with people in place, as a cultural creative conversation of how to create a regenerative human presence in that place. And through that, a regenerative human impact on Earth. The delivery, uh, the, the, the deliverable of regenerative design and development is much more the capacity of people in place to journey regeneratively in an, into an uncertain future and creatively adapt in, to changing context than it is about designed objects and processes. In my 2006 PhD work on design for human and planetary health, I suggested that good design should be salutogenic design, health-generating design. That is to say, we should judge good design by the extent to which it contributes to human, community, ecosystems, and planetary health. We urgently need a Hippocratic oath for designers and technologists. Health in this salutogenic conception as developed by the Israeli health scientist Aaron Antonovsky in the 1960s, is not a static state that needs to be restored after we fall out of that state when we are ill or show symptoms of disease. Rather, health, health is understood as a dynamic capacity of coping, evolving, and transforming in response to inevitable perturbations and changes. In that perception of health, it is, health is very close to regeneration and also to transformative resilience. So lutogenesis is about nurturing the systemic capacity and potential for positive health. Through a complexity lens, health can be understood as a scale-linking emerging property of the nested complexity we participate in and we're expressions of life as a planetary process. Good design should pay attention to how the health of cells, organs, individuals, communities, ecosystems, and the biosphere are all fundamentally interdependent and interconnected. We should ask, how do we design for systemic health? To do so, we need to pay attention to the fact that design goes on designing, as the philo design philosopher Tony Fry has put it. Or in Winston Churchill's words, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. That is to say, we need to question past design decisions and become more aware of how our dominant worldviews shape how we design, and in turn, the resulting des designs have shaped our worldview. We need to redesign our economic systems, our food systems, our transport and energy systems, our systems of governance. Nearly every aspect of the human impact on Earth is open for redesign in accordance with life's regenerative impulse. As the RSA's Regenerative Futures Program invites you to join the regeneration, you are also invited to rediscover your own agency as a salutogenic designer in service to life. Before I end, I need to name at least some of the many people who I've learned from and worked with and without whom I would not be here today. I want to thank my parents 
for their support of my often unconventional path, my wife Alice and my family for believing in me. I actually made a whole map of gratitude and love preparing for this event. And it, it looks a bit like this. Um, <laughs> and by the time I was finished, I realized that uh, there's no way I could even name all those people um, in, in, the, in the time given. So I will put up this map on, on Facebook and Twitter for those who are interested. But nevertheless, I, I do need to thank some institutions and some people before I end. I need to thank Schumacher College for what I learned there uh, 20 years ago while studying um, for a master's in holistic science with Brian Goodwin and Stefan Harding and Henry Bortoft and Fritjof Capra and James Lovelock and Satish Kumar. Many of these teachers and mentors have, have shaped the way I think and what I've been doing since with my life. The single most influential person on my work is Professor Seaton Baxter, who was my PhD supervisor between 2003 and 2006. He helped me to build the foundations for all my work since. Thank you, Seaton. My time at the Center for Alternative Technology and as a co-director of Finthorn College and head of innovation for Guy Education have all shaped my work significantly. And so has my work with the International Futures Forum in H3Uni and the Global Ecovillage Network. Thank you, David Orr, John Todd, Joanna Macy, Mari Hollander, May East, Anthony Hopkins, Graeme Lester, Bill Sharp, Gigi Coyle, Bill Reed, Pamela Mang, Ben Haggard, Jenny Anderson, and many, many fellow regenerative practitioners out there. Thank you to the RSA and to Josie Warden and her team in particular. Thanks to you all. In deep gratitude and with a renewed commitment to design and service to life, I invite you to join the regeneration. Trim tabs unite. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Daniel. That was brilliant. Um, and as ever, I've taken so much from, from your conversation and everything you bring into it. Um, so I'm going to take a bit of um, host prerogative and ask you a few questions before we are open some from the, from the group as well. Um, I'd really like the way you particularly talked about the, um, you know, asking is, is this creating health for the individual, for the community and for the wider space? And I think that those three levels are, are so important in everything. Um, that you do around around gender design. And I wonder if I could ask you a bit about your own your own background and kind of journey towards this. I suppose where you kind of where your inspiration came from and where you as you started thinking, seeing that shift and the need to move towards gender thinking. Oh, excuse me, I'm in a room where the lights have just gone out. Um, and <laughs> did you? Um, I'll do this in a second. Did you? Um, were there any things you needed to change about the way you approached your work yourself? in order to, um, to, to be able to embrace this differently. Thank you, Keely. <laughs> there, there would be so many places to start an answer to that question. Um, of course, I, as a biologist um, originally, I, I realized at some point that modern research science was very quantity focused and somehow blind to the nuanced qualitative relationship based transcontextual data as Nora Bateson, um, or warm, warm data as Nora Bateson now calls it. And, and, and that was one of the reasons why I left science and, and also why, one of the reasons why I then entered uh, into the masters in holistic science because they were trying to address all those issues. Um, I got an opportunity to, to study with Henry Bortoff at Schumacher College, um, the, the, the practice of Goethean science. And Goethe, the, the poet scientist who 200 years ago, already tried to create a phenomenological science of qualities, paying attention to how things come into being in the interplay between our consciousness and what's out there. And I think that's so ahead of its time. Um, I think we're only now beginning to realize how deeply important the, the meta design of new memes, worldviews, and value systems, the new stories, new narratives about who we are, why we're here, where are we going, actually are for creating a, a regenerative future. And um, I, I think another key learning for me was working with the indigenous practice of council. With, with lots of friends in, a, in, in, the 90, in 2006, 2007, I um, ran a project called um, the Learning Partnership for Creative Sustainability with youth educators all around Europe. And um, 
as we were sitting and practicing this indigenous wisdom, ancient practice of, of counsel, we very often quoted this, this wonderful Rainer Maria Rilke invitation of you, you have to live the questions more deeply. Um, and, and, and in many ways that became the, the central theme throughout my book, um, which has 200 questions in it. Um, because when we shift from this solution-focused approach to design that is about problem solving to the question of how would we participate appropriately, even if we admit that there will always be limits to our knowing, that we won't know the outcomes of all our um, effects, uh, our, our actions. Um, living the question lets us, doesn't deny the need for answers and solution, but it lets us hold the solutions and answers lightly enough that we can learn from different possibilities and future pathways, rather than spend all our time arguing which is the one solution that we then have to scale up and implement globally. And I think that much more humble and nuanced um, and place sourced more specific to the unique cultural um, and, and um, biological, ecological context, that, that practice of living the question is really what um, shifted my perspective enorm enormously. And then, um, when I wrote my book, I, I wasn't actually so deeply aware of the work of um, Regenesis Group, Pamela Mang, um, Bill Reed, uh, Ben Haggard, and many others, and, and their mentor, um, Carol Sanford. And so since then, I've also learned enormously by feeling corroborated by their practice through in a different language, but aiming towards the same, same intention but also learning a lot of their frameworks that, that have helped me as a practitioner. So um, yeah, thank you for this opportunity to, to name these people again. <laughs> no, I really like that. And I think that um, we were saying around this, that mindset shift, but if you think about design as an industry or design as a, as a practice, from away from it being about problem solving and create, creating an end product or a thing that's gonna solve that, but actually about how you're releasing to place of its releasing potential for that to kind of continue is such an important mind shift, I think. And um, it's interesting, I think, even with uh, sort of defining design as a discipline has obviously only been around for a couple of centuries, if that. Um, but actually, we're all, you know, as humans, designers in the way that we go about working in life. And I know we've talked previously around the sense of how we are um, all Indigenous to life. And obviously, there's a huge interest and resurgence of interest, which I think is fantastic in Indigenous perspectives, because they, as you say, have been the custodians of, of land and of place and of these practices, whilst um, other areas of life kind of um, brush them aside. Um, but it, I also really like what you've said before about that in being Indigenous to place and how you can learn from your own place and your own history, as well as from places and different people around the world. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about, about kind of what you mean by that and, and why you think yeah. that's important. No, thank you for that. That's uh, because there was a little bit of a pushback um, as regeneration and regenerative practice and regenerative agriculture in particular was starting to get into the, the, the mainstream attention. Um, some indigenous groups rightly highlighted, wait a minute, this is nothing new. And, and this is yet another ap appropriation of indigenous wisdom. And um, so for me, it's, it's very important. That's why I spent quite a bit of time of this address, um, giving focus to the fact that regeneration is nothing new, regenerative cultures are nothing new, that, that it's actually a core pattern of life. In a conversation with Pritjof Capra, we, we agreed that, that we could reframe how life works as a nested regenerative community at, at different scales. And so um, when we say we're all indigenous to life, um, it on the one hand is an invitation to deeply honor that wisdom of our indigenous brothers and sisters that might just be the wisdom that can help us walk into the future to create a regenerative future. But it is a way of honoring that indigeneity without creating yet another other. We too often forget that, for example, in your own country, um, uh, William the Conqueror 
wasn't called William the Conqueror for nothing. He conquered the indigenous tribes of the British Isles. There was deep wisdom of how to live in place and regenerate local ecosystems on those isles before that conquest. The Romans conquered most of the indigenous people around Europe. So the trauma and oppression of colonialization and, and um, this dom dominating process of one culture over another is something that runs just a lot deeper in European history than it then ultimately caused European colonial powers to inflict the same trauma on so many people around the world. But I think we need to remember that shared history that, that um, we have violated indigenous wisdom everywhere, in, also in the countries that are now very often portrayed as if, if, if you're white and come from Europe, you you're not indigenous. Um, and I think that, that if, we, if we want to heal this, this false separation within the human family and the false separation from life as a regenerative community, we need to foreground our shared ancestry. We need to foreground um, that we can rely on life itself and on indigenous wisdom as we bring the best of technology and design to redesigning the human impact on earth. And what I mean by the best of technology and design is also the, the, the urgent need to rethink how we conceive of technologies because most of these indigenous um, ancestors of us um, had powerful technologies of the sacred of how to connect to place and how to learn from life and how to um, transmit that core message that you have to take care of the land because the land takes care of you. And um, we're, we're really invited to bring that into the future and to really look at our technologies and be a little bit less um, kind of hypnotized by the power of technology and really ask, how does it serve? How, how does using a particular technology um, change your life? How does, it, how does that design go on designing and shape, shaping our daily ways of interacting with each other? We've all seen how information technology has transformed the way we interact to the positive and to the negative. Many people are more isolated because of it even if they have lots of friends globally that they've never met. Um, so I think we will not create a regenerative future if we don't learn from our indigenous past and if we don't deeply question our relationship with technology and find a wiser way of choosing when to use it, how to use it, to what extent to use it. And that might also include understanding that certain technologies are simply maladaptive and will not lead to futuring, but to defuturing. And so we need mm -hmm. new ways of coming together as a global family to create moratoriums on the use of those technologies. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, I'm going to start bringing some questions from the audience because there are a lot so um, I'm going to ask one to begin with, which is around, I guess we talked a little bit about you as an individual, then a bit about us as collectives, but when it comes to sort of the wider systems that we're looking at, do you think that moving towards regenerative cultures will, will be able to emerge from our current systems, or is it more likely that we need to see, um, or there will need to be some collapse for that to emerge? Um, and if you think that is necessary, are there particular systems or ways of being and doing at the moment that you think you'd like to see, or you think we need to see collapse rather than evolve? Well, I think we've been in collapse for ongoing a century. So it's, it's not about, um, I, I think the wars of the 20th century were, were signs that, that this was a collapsing civilization. I think, I think that we um, have created a, a structurally dysfunctional economic system that is driving us to exploit people and planet. And without this, redesign the collapse of this economic system, ideally a, a buffered collapse and redesign and not some kind of um, revolution with all the chaos and, and trauma that, that that would entail, 
is necessary. Um, we, we do need to, these designs that have been going on designing our lives and our worldviews for too long, we need to question them and, and um, transform them. Um, but I, I also see that our media only makes us focus on what's going wrong instead of highlighting the very fact that the regenerative cultural impulse, life's regenerative capacity is already everywhere. You just need to look in your own home community and region at how many people care for the elderly, the lonely, the children, the badgers, the you name it. They're all aspects like of, of creating regenerative cultures. Um, we, we, we have so much capacity to care and to support each other and life. And there are just as many examples of hu human beings daily being collaborative and supportive of life's regenerative impulse as there are some over and over repeated horrific stories of human beings doing otherwise. Um, so, so I think that one step of creating regenerative cultures in each place is to make the system of these already existing regenerative impulses that build people's capacity to, to heal their places and heal their communities um, more visible to each other and to embed them into a narrative that makes them, because we, we've been educated to see things in silos through our education system. So even like here on this island, the person um, that I live on, the, the person who set up an electric community carpool cooperative or the person who was running the um, local food network, they might not see how the two things are related or the person working for um, single moms in, in, in social exclusion. Um, but we need to find and tell the narrative that Regenerative cultures is about all of that, but it's also about more than just these sort of people who are trying to heal damage that has already been done. It's about artists, dancers, poets, um, playwrights, giving voice to the inherent human potential to create conditions conducive to life, to offer an alternative narrative to the one that there's just too many of us and we're, we're degenerative species. Um, yes, there are probably too many human beings on the planet right now for long-term thriving of the planetary biosphere, but it's the pattern of consumption of a small proportion of that that is creating the vast amount of the impact. And we could, we, we, we should not repeat this overpopulation as the problem um, meme, because it plays into the hands of fascists and demagogues who will use that in a dystopic future to justify atrocities. We need to understand that even with that many people on the planet, we can turn this one around and use the fact that we are many to do the many jobs we now need to do, the great planting the Great Wall of Africa. Um, reforesting everywhere, healing the soils, healing the waterways, healing the oceans. We're capable of it, and it needs a lot of human power, a lot of man and woman power to make that happen. And um, and that's what the Regeneration Rising is all about. Um, and on that point, you, you mentioned education there, and there's a question from Alexander Crawford, who's thanked you for all your wise words and has also asked around, um, when it comes to regenerative approaches and systems and complexity studies, um, at the moment, um, some of these are starting to be being adopted by um, education spaces. But obviously, we also have quite have had quite historically a very siloed um, approach to education. Um, but do you welcome the kind of spread of some of these ideas into mainstream education, or do you think there is a, it's a bit of a fad and there is maybe an inherent inevitable kind of clash between regenerative views and the kind of modern extractive linear thinking that is often prevalent in education um, at the moment? Well, I think it depends on how it's done. Uh, I, I completely welcome any expression of a truly regenerative impulse. Um, I'm slightly less uh, excited about um, 
the, the, the classic habit of a fashion forming and say what used to be sustainable, circular, smart or lean now is regenerative for hordes of consultants around the world. Um, and and the, the same thing happens in education. I, I in many ways, when, 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 when I heard the news about um, the medal, I, I was somewhat reflecting on the fact that I've spent much more of my professional life as an educator than as what cl um, classical designers would call a designer. But one of the core theories that I explored in, in my um, PhD work um, was based on um, John Wood's notion of meta-design, um, of, of understanding that design flows from worldviews and value systems. So any kind of intervention upstream from the design process that actually manifests things in the world, any kind of intervention at the space of worldview, value system, and cultural creative narrative is actually the most powerful upstream intervention that we can do. And it acknowledges that your intervention will not be predictable and controllable, just as you can't design regenerative cultures. They emergent properties of the sum total of relationships and, and interactions and information flows in that culture. But we can design for positive emergence. We can create the conditions. We can shift the narrative. So people are giving a new context out of which to design in healthier and more regenerative ways. And, and that's why I, I think that um, maybe shifting much more towards designing narratives, designing conversations, designing story, designing processes of bringing people in place together to live the questions, how could we be a regenerative impact on each other and this place? That's really the role of design, rather than creating star designers by fancy buildings or fancy objects. And I think that links into um, another question from Bridget McKenzie, who's talked about the what, uh, what do you think the public organizations such as colleges, museums, design institutes, etc., can sort of do to kind of further this regenerative mindset? I think that what you were just saying there about mindsets being the key. Um, how, what role do you think our public institutions have to kind of support mindset development, or do you see kind of mindset development happening elsewhere? I well, it's it's happening elsewhere. Um, for sure, because of the, the shortcoming of, of the IRA tower institutions for far too long. Um, and also the, the, the kind of um, the slight rut that even other cult cultural institutions in terms of museums and, 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 so, and theatres and so on, were in and just reproducing the, the status quo, um, rather than really playing their role of being public fora of questioning the status quo and, and engaging people in, in the process of envisioning um, new possibilities. And, and I think that, that in, in an ideal world, all universities everywhere should, after 25 years of talking about interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity, and haven't we all heard that when we were in university, and have we all like hardly ever seen that when we were at university or even today. Um, I think we need to, the only way to, to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, I, I really think that the, the children's rhyme Humpty Dumpty is about education. It's about the fracturing of knowledge. And, and we need to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We need to understand that, that each discipline is a valuable perspective, but by taking a perspective, it also has a blind spot. And therefore, the only way that we can have wise decisions is if we, we've, if we have multi-perspectival information present that informs wise decisions, rather than just one arbiter of ultimate truth. And, and it's this process of living the questions and of holding different perspectives in parallel that, that can give us much more wisdom rather than um, just the application of knowledge. And, and if imagine what would happen if universities everywhere were invited to say to each professor and head of department in each discipline, continue your specialized research in your field. But on top of that, you are required to work with others in the university 
the designers, the languages, the, the linguists, and so on, um, to communicate what your discipline has to offer to help people in this place understand this place better. Like what if, if chemistry, biology, ecology, sociology would all work with public institutions like museums and theaters and so on to, tr to do true knowledge transfer and apply the specialized vision of each discipline to coming home to place, to this, this important process of what Gary Snyder called re-inhabitation of becoming place again, of becoming a regenerative presence in place again. It requires us to deeply understand the hydrology, the fauna, the flora, the soil series, the infrastructure, everything of our places. We can't just say, well, I'm not an engineer. That's we, we need to have much more truly educated people. And of course, we can't have knowledge of all places. There's too much information out there. But by reducing the complexity and focusing on our bioregion, on our home region, our place. We can re-enliven learning and also take that because the, the pandemic has started a transformation of work that will be permanent. Um, but this also needs a transformation of education that is permanent. And we need to get out of that box where education is what happens in the first third of your life, then you work, and then you're retired, if you're a privileged person in the global north. Um, education has to be lifelong learning all the way through. You live and you learn, otherwise you don't live very long. If you stop living, learning when you're 25, um, it's a little bit of a dangerous path into the future. So, so I think that th these kind of universities in collaboration with other cultural institutions, should actively invite people in place to understand their region, the limits of their regions and the potential of their regions. They, they, they should be the drivers of local innovation in the process of re-regionalizing our e economic systems, our systems of production and consumption. And again, not as a black and white, we now need to be ultra 100% local. No, we need to figure out, can we actually live 80% on 80% on locally and regionally recycled products and ways of meeting our needs. And what are the 20% of global trade and technology that we do need to um, shift around globally and, and, and share globally in order to enable this much more re, like regional presence of humanity. Um, all of that, I think these institutions have a critical role in and um, while Many of them aren't there yet. I'm also beginning to see many, many more institutions every year joining. And like, for example, I'm, I'm working with um, ETH Zurich, um, the, which is probably, you could say, the, the MIT of Europe, on a massive open online course in designing um, uh, resilient and regenerative systems, which will launch in February. Um, and the very fact that an institution of that kind of weight is has a systemic design lab that is willing to push out the boat and create a course like that makes me feel hopeful. I think we've been talking a lot about place and how you bring it back, how you bring things back to this sense of being able to make sense of it in their own location. Because I think when we're looking about the future, generally that sense of what could this look like can feel so totally overwhelming. Um, but when we're thinking about place, it gives it a totally different dimension and, and way of kind of engaging. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about ways that you've seen or examples that you've seen of how um, starting from place has really changed the way that people have taken, moved towards addressing a problem um, in, in kind of practices that you've seen in different places. I, I think it's, it's essential. You, you can't design, design is about fit, about how things fit into a particular cultural and ecological and social context. So without paying attention to the story of place, the uniqueness of place, and, and holding possible that the place itself can inform the design that it's not human cleverness that has to inform the design. Um, we, 
we will not create the manifestation of that unique potential that this place has. If we, if we create solutions and designs based on abstract notions and then force them onto places, there will always be a lack of that fit that is, is so vital. And um, so for me, the, the whole practice of deep listening to place, which also means deep listening to who lived in that place be before us and um, the, the, the sum total of knowledge we have about how that place has changed over time can also give us information about its potential for the future. Um, my friend May East from Guy Education, who I've worked with for many years, likes to say, um, creating the future without knowledge of your past is like planting cut flowers. Um, and I think it's a, it's a lovely image. And, and so we, we really need to um, work fr from place in order to create any kind of, uh, like even, even have a chance of creating um, truly regenerative solutions. But the, the interesting bit there is quoting some, some of my friends from Regenesis, um, place is fractal. Place, it doesn't necessarily always mean ultra local. Um, what we do in a particular locality we also do in the region and we also are doing to the planet. And so, the, so the, the planetary impact actually comes through this local and regional um, action. It's, it's this notion that in Gaia education, we, we've called global, um, global, like bringing the word global and local together. And I think this, this global way of working, of um, being sensitive, sensitive to place and place sourced, but also being aware that we have to find our, like, create our designs in the context of the planetary boundaries in order to create the social and ecological foundations like the Kate Ravert's donut um, as, as pointed out that we, we, if we don't create the social and ecological foundations, we won't create the conditions for cultures to live within planetary boundaries. So we have to work both on the global and the local um, and, and learn how to know when to pay attention to what aspect of place like it's in, in my phd work i called it scale linking design where, where we really pay a lot of attention to how from the material to the product design to the community design to bioregional planning and international networks design is as always to fit into each other and you're doing a lot of that work yourself in where you're based in mallorca right of thinking about how the place what you're doing on your land connects to the wider place connects connects up um what do you think the kind of some of the critical questions are for people to ask themselves um in any projects they're doing around um how their how their work connects up to the next layer well it's a, it's it's a it's a tricky like just as as a designer this pulsing between the scales like you can be an architect most of your time but if you design buildings without thinking about the the off-gassing of the products and furniture that will be in the in the buildings, you, you're not service, uh, serving your client nor creating health, healthy designs. Um, so, so it's this, this pulsing be between material science and industrial ecology that every designer needs to be able to do. And um, in a similar way, it's, it's uh, I've lost my, lost my thread again. <laughs> Can you repeat your question? Yeah, I just asked me about what kind of questions people can ask themselves. Ah, yeah, I guess yeah. as they're, if they're, when they're thinking on their projects, how that then links up. Yeah, so, so it's, it's basically the, the, we need to, like I personally have had this experience of feeling quite conflicted between where to put my energy between um, the immediate work of just saying, this is where I take my stance, um, these 5,400 square meters, I will do my best to regenerate the soil and plant a food forest and, and heal that little piece of planet Earth. But if I do that without reaching out to my immediate neighbors and connect with them, it will be of little impulse. And if even if, we, if I did that without also paying attention to how our neighborhood sits in and is dependent on the island of Mallorca and the the island archipelagos of, of, of the Balearic Islands, um, I, I don't think I would do 
long-term service either. So it is this, this ability to, in a nuanced way, know when to work ultra-locally, regionally, and also globally in terms of the exchange and the collaboration between bioregions to engage with this redesign of the human impact on Earth. So um, it's, it's, it's not clear-cut, and it's, I think it's always going to be a little bit of a polarity that actually has huge potential and, and can, can, can actually drive that creative activity of, of becoming regenerative. I think that's why this sense of the, having a community of practitioners and lots of people working on this is so important because again, people will need to take, or will want to or need to focus in the slight different levels of things and how we kind of bring this together, which is I guess what we want, what we hope to do at the RSA as well is to kind of create a space where we can hold that. Um, and I wonder then if we've talked, you've talked a little bit about the kind of interests developing quite rapidly in regenerative practice over the last year or so and more in the I guess mainstream space and I think part of us moving to the, into that is also kind of a symptom of that. Um, I wonder if we could sort of wrap up on talking about where you hope this movement to be in maybe a year or a couple of years time and what you think maybe some some risks are or some kind of pit, potential pitfalls that people should look out for as we're kind of moving towards this this way of thinking and, and acting. Well I, I, I think that as this the, as the signals that signal that we have been in within a collapsing system for for at least a few decades um, are becoming clearer and clearer. People are getting um, shaken to their core uh, with regard to do we actually still have a future? And um, climate change has pushed us to the point where it's. A little bit hard to tell. I don't. I don't. Wouldn't fully trust any scientist who either says I. I'm sure it's already too late, or who says I'm sure we still have a chance. Um, I personally, as a scientist, would say, I think we still have a chance, but it's very much that uncertainty that will cook us. That is part of this species level rite of passage that I mentioned earlier. Um, that will cook us enough to really transform our patterns. So, um, and, and to some extent, for me, the focus on creating bioregional food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, water sovereignty, educational capability, and the basic means to provide for regional populations within the context of that region in ways that ideally drive the reforestation and the healing of local ecosystems rather than the destruction of the local ecosystems is a kind of fail-safe pathway with regard to this jury still being out of do we still have a chance or do we not have a chance? Because creating that local capacity for resilience and weathering uncertain and tumultuous futures will serve as well as humanity in a world where we continue to spiral towards increasing climate meltdown. And it will give those local po populations a higher po possibility to live a meaningful and humane life for those generations we've got left. And at the same time, to my mind, it is the one chance that we have to get through the eye of the needle and come out at the other end and create those regenerative futures we're all hoping for. So for, for me, the hope of where we are in 10 years time is that we've realized that in order to heal this system that has pushed in particularly the, the violent neoliberal globalization of the, the, the 1990s, ever more um, efficiencies of scale, killing so-called redundancy at lo local and regional or national levels and outsourcing productions to far areas of the planet and so on gets redesigned and added a layer of regional resilience building and regional core capacity building with regard to food, water, energy, sovereignty, and so on. Um, and I think it's an opportunity to create employment, to create innovation, to, to create thriving regional economies that can buffer the, the, the probably likely global economic collapse sooner or later. Um, and so it's just wise to um, engage in bioregional regeneration. And, and I would hope that in 10 years time, 
every national development strategy is taking subsidiarity seriously and is devolving to let the regions serve the regions and sees national organization and international organization as enablers of this re-regionalization process and, and bioregional regeneration. Thank you. And I think that's a really good place to, to wrap up and something for us all to think about in our own in our own practices as well. So thank you so much. It's been a really wonderful session. And I there are so many questions that I couldn't ask you. <laughs> um, so I think we could have gone for a lot longer. Um, but hopefully there'll be a lot of further opportunities for um for us and for the RSA community to engage with you and talk to you because I think there's so much there's so much we can learn. And thank you all for joining us this evening. And please take a look at um, Daniel's work, which I'm sure you've already done, um, but also at the Regenerative Futures program. That we're developing here at the RSA and it's got some more information on the website about what we're developing um, and Daniel and I both have essays in the latest edition of the RSA journal which hopefully you'll find interesting um, and there's some links to those in the chat I think in a second um, so all that's left for me is to say a huge thank you to jo Joanna Shuker and everyone who supported the nomination process this year um, but most importantly to say thank you to you Daniel our 2021 bicentenary medalist um, winner for a really really inspiring address and for a great conversation and really looking forward to to engaging more in the future and to um to talking more and thank you all for watching everyone and good night and good evening wherever you are thanks for listening if you like this podcast head to our youtube channel for inspiring talks interviews and animations <laughs>